भाई जनाब हुसैन हकाली साहब सीनियर फेलो डायरेक्टर ऑफ साउथ एशियन साउथ एंड सेंट्रल एशिया हटसन इंस्टीट्यूट यूएस सो मेनी ऑफ यू मैन नॉट बी नोइंग आई हैव जस्ट ज्वाइन हियर एज बाई शासर अबाउट टू मंथ्स बैक एंड आई एम फार फार अवे फ्रॉम द सब्जेक्ट इज गोइंग टू स्पीक बिकॉज आई एम ए साइंटिस्ट सो आई डोंट वॉन्ट टू इंटरफेयर इन डिफिकल्ट थिंग्स ओके तो आई लिव दैट फॉर हकानी साहब टू डील विथ बट इट्स ऑनर टू हैव सच अ experienced uh, diplomat with us and uh, he is going to speak uh, about uh, badshah khan popularly known to us and uh, i am sure uh, after his talk you will be happy to reply uh, some of the queries or uh, we will have some discussion so i uh, request janab uh, hatani sahab to give the talk honorable vice chancellor respected members of the faculty students ladies and gentlemen uh, it is an honor for me to be invited to deliver the second khan abdul ghaffar khan memorial lecture here at jamia millia islamia uh, one of the great tragedies of the partition of the subcontinent has been the development of separate narratives of history in india and pakistan which do not do justice to several great men khan ghaffar khan abdul ghaffar khan or badshah khan or bacha khan as he is lovingly known is one of them just as most indians know little about the early contribution of mohammad ali jinnah qaid azam to pakistanis to the demand for self rule in british india most pakistanis remain ill informed about the struggle of bacha khan against british imperialism khan abdul ghaffar khan was a towering figure towering figure actually both literally and figuratively he was a very tall man as you can see uh, from his picture uh, and especially his pictures with mahatma gandhi really uh, accentuate uh, his physical height so khan abdul ghaffar khan was a towering figure in indian and pakistani history he spent more years in prison for his beliefs than nelson mandela first under british rule and later under dictatorships in pakistan bacha khan was punished by the british for demanding freedom from foreign rule after independence unfortunately he was punished in the new state of pakistan for questioning its elites and their policies the frontier gandhi had embraced the philosophy of non violence and he was influenced greatly by mahatma gandhi in his autobiography he explained he saw how, how he saw mahatma gandhi at a congress moot while attending a conference of the khilaf congress moot while attending a conference of the khilafat movement in calcutta and he began to like him this is how uh, bacha khan narrates the incident gandhi ji was addressing the meeting a conceited young man in the audience kept on heckling him but gandhi ji did not get angry he just laughed 
and went on talking. The young man interrupted again and again, but Gandhiji only laughed. This made a deep impression on me, and when I returned to my lodging, I told my companions about it. If only our Muslim leaders could remain as calm and unperturbed as Gandhiji, the leader of the Hindus, I told them. According to Bacha Khan, he was also put off by the haughty response of Maulana Muhammad Ali when he spoke to him about Gandhi's patience and self-control. Again, I quote from uh, Bacha Khan. Muhammad Ali Sahib did not react as we had hoped he would. He became very annoyed and said, and who do you think you are, you Pathans from the back of beyond, to come and tell me how to behave? Then he got up and left the room. We were very disappointed and hurt. After that, I did not want to attend the Khilafat conference anymore. If the conceit of the Khilafat leadership brought Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan close to Gandhi, his disappointment with the Muslim League made him an ally of the Indian National Congress. Bacha Khan saw the British and not other Indian communities as the enemy of the Pashtun people he led. The Muslim League leaders did not confront the British during the course of the Second World War as they saw the British as protecting Muslims in order that they could fight Hindus. By his own account, Bacha Khan's Khudai Khidmagar movement had not joined the Congress until the Muslim League turned down its request for support against the British. Now we were desperate, he wrote. A drowning man has no choice but to catch any straw to save himself. We were very disappointed with the Muslim League. So we asked our two friends to contact the Congress leaders and request them to help us. In their meeting with the Congress leaders, our friends were told that the, that the Congress would be prepared to give us all possible help if we, from our side, would agree to join them in the struggle for the freedom of India. Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan became one of the most influential Muslim leaders of the subcontinent who opposed the idea of Pakistan. Others who did so included Maulana Abul Kalam Azad, the first education minister of independent India, and Dr. Zakir Hussain, founder and one of the early vice chancellors of this very uh, prominent university. 67 years later, when the existence of Pakistan is a reality and cannot be undone, it should be possible for us to objectively examine the arguments of Muslim opponents of the Muslim League. Unfortunately, that has not been done in Pakistan. It still becomes an emotional issue and it still tends to be a question not of just examining history and historic options, but it becomes a question of questioning Pakistan, which is not easy or allowed in our country. After mobilizing support for the demand for Pakistan and establishing it as an independent country, successive Pakistani leaders have chosen to keep alive the divisive frenzy that led to partition. If Pakistan was attained with the slogan, Islam in danger, it has been built on the slogan, Pakistan in danger, creating a constant sense of insecurity among its people. Bacha Khan, along with some other leaders like Bengal's Hussain Shaheed Sorowardi, opposed the conjuring of this ideology of Pakistan. He had opposed partition, but after the partition he said, and I quote, now that the existence of Pakistan is a fact, 
and the Congress and the Muslim League have both accepted that fact. I only wish to serve my country and my people without asking for a share in anything. My people are now loyal citizens of Pakistan and we will do our bit for the reconstruction and progress of the country. But, he, but as he wrote himself, the government of Pakistan was not impressed by his oath of loyalty. It accused Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan of disloyalty to Pakistan. It is a tragedy that this great freedom fighter spent more time in prison in the independent state of Pakistan than he had even under British rule. According to Bacha Khan, Though we did not commit any crimes, the government of the treatment that Pakistan government meted out to us from the very beginning was more cruel and more unjust than anything we had suffered under the rule of the foreign infidels. The British never looted our homes, but the Islamic government of Pakistan did. The British never had stopped us from holding public meetings or publishing newspapers, but the Islamic government of Pakistan did both. I could go on and on, but what is the use? In the end, Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan was as disappointed with the reality of Pakistan as he had been unsupportive of the idea of Pakistan. He wrote, I am afraid I do not entertain any friendly feelings for Pakistan. Pakistan was founded on hatred. She was born not out of love but of hatred and she grew up on hatred, on malice, on spite and hostility. Pakistan was created by the grace of the British in order that the Hindus and the Muslims might forever be at war and forget that we were brothers. Pakistan is unable to think in terms of peace and friendship. And here is the most operative remark. She wants to keep the Pakistani people under control by making them live in a nightmare of riots, assaults and holy war. My religion Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan wrote, is truth, love and service to God and humanity. Every religion that has come into the world has brought the message of love and brotherhood. And those who are indifferent to the welfare of their fellow men, those whose hearts are empty of love, those who do not know the meaning of brotherhood, those who harbor hatred and resentment in their hearts, do not know the meaning of religion. I take this opportunity to salute the memory of Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, Bacha Khan and his family and his followers for keeping aloft the flag of a pluralist, tolerant, democratic Pakistan under very difficult circumstances. This brings me to the topic of today's lecture. Dedicated as it is to the memory of Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, I have chosen the topic reimagining Pakistan as the theme for today's presentation. Why have I done it? Well, over several visits to India I have realized that almost every discussion of Pakistan, especially in India, inevitably tends to be about the logic and the raison d'etre of the country's creation. Almost at every public address that I have ever made in India, at least one person had got up and asked me, but do you think it was a good idea that Pakistan was created? The process of partitioning a subcontinent along religious lines did not prove as neat as Pakistan's founder, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, had anticipated. Mr. Jinnah was a lawyer who saw partition as a solution to potential constitutional problems in an independent India. 
In his first address to Pakistan's Constituent Assembly on August 11, 1947, exactly 61, 67 years today, ago today, and it's the anniversary of Mr. Jinnah's 11th August speech, which is a very crucial speech in the life of Pakistan. Mr. Jinnah had said, I know there are people who do not quite agree with the division of India and the partition of the Punjab and Bengal. Much has been said against it. But now that it has been accepted, it is the duty of every one of us to loyally abide by it and honorably act according to the agreement which is now final and binding on all. One can quite understand the feeling that exists between the two communities, wherever one community is in majority and the other is in minority. But the question is, whether it was possible or practicable to act otherwise than what has been done. A division had to take place. On both sides in Hindustan and Pakistan, there are sections of people who may not agree with it, who may not like it, but in my judgment there was no other solution. And I am sure future history will record its verdict in favor of it. And what is more, it will be proved by actual experience as we go on that that was the only solution of India's constitutional problem. Now please note that it is clear from Mr. Jinnah's statement that he saw partition only as a constitutional way out of what he saw as a political stalemate and not the beginning of a permanent state of hostility between two countries, two nations and two communities. This explains his expectation that India and Pakistan would live side by side like the United States and Canada with open borders, free flow of ideas and free trade. It is also the reason why the Qaeda Azam insisted that his Malabar Hills house in Bombay be kept as it was so that he could return to the city where he had lived most of his life after retiring as Governor General of Pakistan. We all know now that the partition and the birth of Pakistan were not simply the end of an argument about constitutional options. As Mr. Jinnah had thought, the entire country was plunged into communal violence. Hundreds of thousands of people from both sides were butchered and millions had to flee their homes. Instead of living as good neighbors like the United States and Canada, India and Pakistan have gone on to become adversaries in a state of constant war a situation that has not benefited either country but has damaged Pakistan even more. The territory that constituted Pakistan was undivided India's economic backyard and could not immediately provide trained manpower to lead the new country's administration or military. While many Muslims migrated from India to Pakistan as a result of the violence that also drove Hindus and Sikhs out of Pakistan and Muslims mainly out of Punjab, others moved to take advantage of economic and employment opportunities in the new country. For several years after independence, higher educated migrants from India, now, uh, whose children are now referred to in Pakistan as Mahajirs, secured better jobs and higher positions in the new state of Pakistan. But over the years, Pakistan evolved into an Islamist ideological state, a shortcut to resolving the complex inter-ethnic, social and economic dynamics among its people. After the loss of its eastern wing, which became Bangladesh in 1971, Pakistan has been completely dominated by one ethnic group, the Punjabis who tend to favor the ideological model for Pakistan 
and are heavily represented in the military, the media and the bureaucracy. Political scientist Benedict Anderson in his book Imagined Communities defined a nation as quote, an imagined political community imagined as both inherently limited and sovereign. According to Anderson, a nation is a socially constructed community joined by the imagination of people who perceive themselves as part of that group. Which basically means as long as the people think of themselves as a nation, they are a nation. Many writers, including Salman Rushdie, have argued that Pakistan was quote unquote insufficiently imagined given the ambiguities inherent in the demand for Pakistan. As a Pakistani born well after partition and who has known no other homeland, I understand some of the critique of Pakistan. But I am unable to dispense with the idea of home. And millions like me now know only Pakistan as their homeland. Pakistan's median age today is 21 which means that 90 million of its 180 million inhabitants are less than 21 years old and have not seen either the 1947 partition of India or the 1971 separation of Bangladesh. For the sake of these young Pakistanis, a reimagining of Pakistan is needed, going beyond the bitterness of the 1947 partition and the subsequent disasters inflicted upon Pakistanis by their own rulers and leaders. Pakistan, like any other nation, is not a monolith. Its people have energy, talent and aspirations for a good life like anyone else. Most foreign visitors to Pakistan, including Indians, will tell you of our hospitality, our warmth and the capabilities of individual Pakistanis they meet. Now one can disagree about or even be agnostic about whether the creation of the state of Pakistan in August 1947 was a tragedy or not. But there is no doubt that the failure of Pakistanis to create a more tolerant and democratic state and the difficult reconciliation between India and Pakistan have had catastrophic consequences. Ever since their nation's creation, Pakistanis have felt compelled to defend their nationhood and to constantly define and redefine their identity. Pakistan's unfortunate history may justify the description of being insufficiently imagined. But imagination is not, by definition, a finite process. An entity that is insufficiently imagined can be reimagined. Just as the imagination can falsify, demean, ridicule, caricature and wound, it can also serve to clarify, intensify and unveil. Several Pakistanis in the tradition of Bacha Khan are working, albeit with great difficulty, to reimagine Pakistan as an inclusive, pluralist, democratic, modern state inclusive, pluralist, democratic, modern state that works towards the well-being of its own people instead of being preoccupied with endlessly defining itself specially in relation to its neighbors. 
From its inception, Pakistan was seen as an anachronism by many. It also assumed permanent hostility from India, whose leaders were opposed to partition and had predicted the demise of the new nation in the early years. The dispute between the two nations over the Himalayan territory of Jammu and Kashmir, which remains unresolved to this day, enhanced Pakistan's confrontation with India. Unsure of their fledgling nation's future, the politicians, civil servants and military officers who led Pakistan in its formative years decided to exacerbate the antagonism between Hindus and Muslims that had led to partition. This, of course, was a total in total opposition to Jinnah's argument, which was that the creation of Pakistan will lessen the antagonism because now the Muslims will have one country where they will be in a majority and the Hindus will have a country where they will be in a majority and so therefore both countries will be able to live at peace having a majority and a minority a, a majority that prevails and a minority that can be protected very soon after independence Islamic Pakistan quote unquote was defining itself through the prism of resistance to Hindu India. The idea of Islam in danger had been replaced with Pakistan in danger. Short of resources and burdened by inheriting a large army, Pakistan also sought great power allies to help pay for the economic and military development of the new country. The partition of British India's assets in 1947 had left Pakistan with one-third 33% of the British Indian Army and only 17% of its revenues. The military started out as the dominant institution in the new state, a dominance it has perpetuated over the years. After several years of exercising behind-the-scenes influence, General Ayub Khan assumed power directly in 1958 and ruled through martial law. Three further direct military takeovers followed. The military has directly or indirectly dominated Pakistani politics and set Pakistan's ideological and national security agenda since then. Some, some scholars attribute Pakistan's troubles to its inception and the ambiguity about what it means to be a Pakistani. In the words of one of them, it is the country's problematic and contested relationship with Islam that has most decisively frustrated its quest for a coherent national identity and for stability as a nation-state capable of absorbing the challenges of its rich and diverse society. The success of the jihadi experiment against the Soviets in collaboration with the United States and much of the non-communist world encouraged Pakistan's strategic planners to expand jihad against India and into post-Soviet Central Asia. Pakistan's sponsorship of the Taliban in Afghanistan and the presence on its territory of Islamist militants from all over the world was the outcome of its desire to emerge as the center of global Islamic resurgence. Ironically, not all Pakistani leaders supporting this strategy were motivated by religious fervor. In most cases, they simply embraced Islamism as a politico-military strategic doctrine that would enhance Pakistan's prestige and position. The focus on building an ideological state, however, has caused Pakistan to lag behind in almost all areas that define a functional modern state. At the moment, 
the insufficiently imagined Pakistan is the world's only nuclear-armed Muslim country that has been described as slowly sliding towards state failure for at least the last two decades. The return of chaotic democracy has exacerbated Pakistan's ethnic, religious and social divisions even it has had the positive effect of giving its people a voice. The country's most powerful institution, the military, is having to contend with several parallel insurgencies and is no longer able to ensure order or security. Islamist extremists have become sufficiently emboldened to attack army headquarters and major military installations. Although almost 36,695 Pakistanis have been killed by terrorists or in terrorism-related violence since 2008, both civilian and military leaders have yet to demonstrate a resolve in confronting the challenge of terrorism. Pakistan is strategically located at the crossroads of three significant regions, the Gulf, Central Asia and South Asia. It borders Iran, Afghanistan, China and India, all of whom are important for different reasons. Pakistan's economy today is stagnant, its population is increasing rapidly and its institution of state, institutions of state are too tied to a national ideology rooted in Islamist discourse to be able to address its multi-dimensional challenges. With terrorist strains in Pakistan showing up all over Europe and in places as far from one another as Mali and Indonesia, Pakistan's, of, Pakistan's change of direction is now a global concern. International assistance, especially from the United States and some from China and Saudi Arabia, has brought Pakistan from the brink in the past. But rising xenophobia and Islamo-nationalism exhibited prominently after the discovery of Osama bin Laden in a Pakistani garrison town make continued US support for Pakistan unlikely. In recent years, China has also been restrained in its support for Pakistan because of concerns over presence of Uyghur jihadists. It is no longer easy for Pakistan's military or civilian elite to create a semblance of stability with covert arrangements with the United States or with China. Distrust between the erstwhile allies is at an all-time high. A Fox News poll in 2012 showed that 74% of Americans do not view Pakistan as an ally and want to cut off all aid to Pakistan. A recent Pew poll showed Pakistani dis disapproval of the United States at 59% compared with 80% with an un unfavorable view of the United States in 2012. The same poll the Global Attitude Survey also shows that 30% of the Chinese people have an unfair, only 30% of the Chinese people have a favorable view of Pakistan, which means that Pakistan's closest ally, closest ally does not have a majority of its people having a favorable view of it, of Pakistan. <clears throat> If the influence of Islamists in Pakistan continues to rise, it would most likely be increasing, increasingly adversarial towards the US and the West and of course India. Islamist enthusiasm for creating an Islamic East Turkestan would not sit well with China. In any case, Pakistan's direction as a nation cannot and should not be determined by the US and other outsiders the principal actors in this process would have to be Pakistanis.
Pakistan has faced a deep crisis of identity and suffers from chronically weak state institutions. Its fears about its viability and security have led it to seek alliance with the US on the one hand and to pursue a nuclear deterrent and sub-conventional military capability, which is manifested in the form of the Islamist terrorists, against India and Afghanistan on the other. Despite the constant rewriting of constitutions, Pakistan is far from developing a consistent system and form of government. Political polarization persists. We are seeing that as we speak uh, going on in Lahore and Islamabad with Mr. Imran Khan and Mr. Tahrir Qadri refusing to accept the consequences of the last election, which is the election of a Pakistan Muslim League government. So political polarization persists between Islamists and secularists, between civilians and the military, and among different ethnic groups. Political factions have often found it difficult to cooperate with each other or to submit themselves to rule of law, often with the aid of a military intelligence apparatus that plays a behind-the-scenes role in exaggerating political divisions to justify military intervention. Pakistan's military, which dominates the Pakistani state, even in the presence of an elected government, has developed a policy tripod that includes emphasis on Islam as a national unifier, hostility towards India as the principal foreign policy objective, and an alliance with the United States that helps defray the costs of Pakistan's massive military expenditures. These policy precepts encourage Islamic, extremist Islamism and obstruct Pakistan's evolution as a normally functioning state. Pakistan's pursuit of strategic objectives disproportionate to its capacity has been inadvertently encouraged by its alliance with the United States. This convergence of potential internal collapse and external factor, factors has led to what may be described by what has been described by some as the Pakistan crisis. Some scholars attribute the military's continued interest in political power to its institutional business interests. Others offer more sympathetic views of the military's role, suggesting that Pakistan's complex circumstances rather than design have shaped Pakistan's history, including the military's ascendancy. Most agree that the military remains and is likely to remain the dominant policymaker in Pakistan and is unlikely to easily change its world view. In all crucial areas, the role of Pakistan's intelligence apparatus, principally the, the services intelligence, ISI, is significant as the covert driver of Pakistani policy, and any change in Pakistan's direction would involve understanding of the ISI's objectives and methods. Pakistan's deep state insists on defining Pakistani nationalism narrowly. This is the most crucial point that I would like you to take away from this lecture. Pakistan's deep state insists on defining Pakistani nationalism narrowly and focuses on delegitimizing all those who offer alternative visions for the country as traitors. Its strength lies in creating the illusion of virtual unanimity in Pakistan on critical issues such as relations with India and Afghanistan, the role of Islam, jihadism and attitudes towards the rest of the world. The disproportionate focus on ideology, military capability and external alliances has weakened Pakistan internally. One element of national power, the military one, has been developed at the cost of all other elements of national power. The country's institutions, ranging from schools and universities 
to the judiciary are, are in a state of general decline, notwithstanding the judiciary's recent attempt to assert itself at the highest level. So you can have some assertions from the Supreme Court, but the judiciary down below still remains very weak. The economy's stuttering growth is dependent largely on the flow of concessional flows of external resources. Pakistan's GDP today stands at $222 billion in absolute terms and $547 billion in purchasing price parity, the smallest economy of any country that has so far tested nuclear weapons. Pakistan today suffers from massive urban unemployment, rural underemployment, illiteracy and low per capita income. 22% of the population lives below the poverty line and another 21% lives just above it, resulting in almost half the people of Pakistan being very poor. It is little comfort for Pakistanis living in poverty when they are told that poverty across the border in India or Afghanistan is even starker. Soon after independence, 16.4% of Pakistan's population was literate compared with 18.3% of the much larger population in India. So in 1947, 16.4% of what is today Pakistan was literate, 18.3% of what is today India was literate. But for almost 15 years after independence, Pakistan made no allocation for literacy in its national budget. By 2011, India had managed to attain 74% literacy, while Pakistan's literacy rates stood at around 55%. So what was a 2% difference has now become a 20% difference. In 2009, Pakistan allocated 2.7% of its budget for education, and the school life expectancy in Pakistan is 7 years. A staggering 38% of Pakistanis between the school-going age of 5 and 15 are completely out of school. With a population of 180 to 190 million, out of which 60% fall in the working age category of 15 to 64, and another 35% under 14 years of age, Pakistan has a demographic dividend which can also turn into a demographic nightmare. The low literacy rate and inadequate investment in education has led to a decline in Pakistan's technological base, which in turn hampers economic modernization. Textiles are the country's major industry, but despite that fact, and despite the fact that Pakistan is one of the world's major cotton producing nations, its exports in value-added textiles do not match even those of Bangladesh. With one of the lowest tax-to-GDP ratios in the world of around 9%, a GDP growth rate ranging between 2 to 3% and population growth rate of 1.5%, Pakistan needs foreign as well as domestic investment in addition to drastic changes in local laws, all of which will need broad political consensus and stability, both of which are lacking. Over the decades, Pakistan has managed to evade crisis and failure status primarily because the international community has bailed Pakistan out. With almost 40% of its population urbanized, 40% urbanized population, the government spends only 2.6% of public health care. As a result, social services are in a state of decline. On the other hand, Pakistan spends almost 6% of its GDP on defense 
and is still unable to match the conventional forces of India, which outspent Pakistan 3 to 1 while allocating less than 3% of GDP to military spending. There is an alternative vision for Pakistan and that's what I want to talk about today. An alternative vision for Pakistan as a pluralist, multi-ethnic, modern, democratic Muslim state functioning under rule of law for the material well-being of all its citizens. For those who are taking notes, I'm going to try and repeat it so you can get it exactly as I'm trying to put it forward. The alternative vision for Pakistan is a pluralist, multi-ethnic, modern, democratic, Muslim-majority state functioning under rule of law for the material well-being of all its citizens. In recent years, those articulating or supporting this alternative vision have been marginalized as a result of the dominance of Pakistan's national discourse by Islamists and Islamo-nationalists. There is a tendency to abuse people who offer a pluralist vision for Pakistan, saying that they are undermining the ideology of Pakistan, although, very frankly, it is perfectly possible for Pakistan to remain Muslim in its overall ethos, because individuals will remain, can be pious, society can be religious, but the state can still be secular and pluralist. Reimagining Pakistan involves changing the nature of the Pakistani state, away from an ideological Islamic one to a state that is pragmatic in defining its national interest and functional in attaining it. Pragmatic in defining its national interest and functional in attaining it. Of course, the first step in reimagining Pakistan would be to abandon the narrow ideological paradigm of Pakistani nationalism. Pakistan is here to stay, and no one in the world wants it dis no one in the world wants it dismembered if it functions effectively as a responsible international citizen. Armed with nuclear weapons, Pakistan does not need to live in a constant state of fear, insecurity and anxiety. The state of insecurity fostered in Pakistan is psychological and should now be replaced with a logical self-confidence. Once pluralism and secularism are no longer dirty words in my country and all national discussions need not be framed within the confines of an Islamist ideology, it will become easier for Pakistan to tackle the jihadi menace. It goes without saying that there should be no support from the state for any militant jihadi group based on false strategic or foreign policy premises. I was expecting an applause right now, so you might as well give it. I'll repeat that. It goes without saying that there should be no support from the state for any militant jihadi group based on false strategic or foreign policy premises. Jihadi, jihadi terrorism is now a threat to Pakistan and must be eliminated for Pakistan's sake. The shift away from ideological nationalism to functionalist nationalism, meaning we are Pakistanis because we were born in Pakistan, as opposed to, we are Pakistanis because our forebears resolved to create an Islamic state. Two different conditions. One is the ideological paradigm that we are Pakistanis because we are, our, our forebears 
resolved to create a state for Muslims that was going to become an Islamic state. Instead, adopting the paradigm, we are Pakistanis because we were born in Pakistan, will help change the milieu in which various Islamist, extremist and jihadi groups recruit and operate in Pakistan. Once the state has resolved to end support to all jihadis and is reconciled to a pluralist Pakistan open to multiple visions for the country's future, extremists would have to contend for Pakistani hearts and minds rather than having a captive following generated by a national narrative taught in schools and promoted by the national media. Pakistan must also overcome archaic notions of national security. Instead of viewing ourselves as a warrior nation, we should see ourselves as a trading nation that can take advantage of our location for economic purposes. Instead of sitting at the crossroads of conflict, we should see ourselves as sitting at the crossroads of opportunities. Pakistan could easily be the transshipment route for goods and services between India, the Middle East and Central Asia. It could have oil and gas pipelines running through it with attending benefits. India and Afghanistan would be major trading partners instead of being viewed as permanent enemies or strategic threats. High literacy, global connectivity, increased agricultural and industrial productivity and a prosperous citizenry would be the goals of the state in a reimagined Pakistan. These objectives would replace pan-Islamism, jihadism, pursuit of parity with India and strategic, and strategic depth which have been Pakistan's unattained ambitions of the past. Only by reimagining itself can Pakistan find peace with itself and its neighbors and stop being viewed by the rest of the world as a troubled state, a failing state or a crisis state. All three terms that are widely used internationally to describe Pakistan. Living in a state of denial is not an option for Pakistanis. It is time for us to think about visualizing a future of Pakistan that is starkly different from the past 67 years. In the end, I wish and pray that the process of reimagination can overtake the tide of extremism and intolerance that is currently sweeping my country. Thank you all and I am now looking forward to your questions. General Saab. Hi. How are you? I am very good. I came especially uh, to listen to you after yesterday. I couldn't get an opportunity to ask you this question. Oh gosh, so you've come all the way just to ask the question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the question is this, in your reimagination of Pakistan, uh, you basically stated that the state has to be reconstructed. In this reconstruction of the state, you say that the Pakistan military will continue to be the dominant element. Let, let, let me finish and then you can uh, correct uh, any anomalies in my enumeration. Uh, even if that is not the case, the Pakistani military is the predominant element in Pakistan. 
Now, how are you? Because the the reimagination. Where are you going to start? What is the start point for this? Will it be correct to say that altering the balance of power? In other words, how is it possible for the military in Pakistan to be actually under civilian rule? How do you bring that about? Because, to my mind, that ought to be the first step. Well, uh, I'm glad that you think that that is the first step. My view is that the military's dominance is legitimated. No military can dominate a country forever. We've seen that in Latin America. They always need a uh, legitimizing ideology and justification. So, for example, anti-communism was always the justification uh, in the, in Latin America. Uh, there have been many, many countries that have had uh, military dominance. And the military dominance has almost always been legitimated by an ideology. And if you crack that ideology, then that, that, then that dominance, its justification starts to erode. And that's when the civilians can start, st st uh, uh, can start uh, uh, shall we say, uh, asserting control. So we've seen that in Indonesia where the military's justification was that Indonesia cannot progress because of its disparity, uh, there are too many problems, so the military has to keep it all together. Uh, once they let go of East Timor uh, and then said, we don't need that legitimizing ideology, we can actually work towards functional uh, nationalism by being a democratic state, the military still keeps on trying to pressure the situation. We saw that recently when Soharto's son-in-law became a presidential candidate, uh, got a lot of votes but didn't win and in the end had to concede uh, victory uh, to the, the person who had won. It will be a process. It won't be an event. If anybody expects that the reimagining of Pakistan will be, Akani Saab has given a speech in Bhashan in Jamia, tomorrow morning everybody will reimagine and it will happen. It's not. It's going to be a process. But in that process, the reimagined Pakistan will have a military only commensurate with Pakistan's resources. Because you cannot have a military capability that is disproportionate to your resources and your capabilities. In fact, that has caused a lot of strains and burdens in Pakistan. Why do you think those 42% of the children that I talk about who are not in school, why do you think they are not in school? Because the government does not have the means to build the primary schools for them because the money is going towards uh, Pakistan maintaining its uh, I, I, it, it's uh, imaginary military prowess. So it's time now to be realistic about these things. But till we come to that point, the, the military will remain a dominant institution, but the military as an institution will have to respond to society. So far the military has been able to convince society that we have an existential threat and you need us. To put it differently, if you have a chokidar outside your house, if that chokidar is able to persuade you that you have a lot of threats, then you will keep increasing the chokidar's salary. You will keep giving him, you know, he wants, he starts with a danda, then he wants the gun, you buy him the gun, you are the one who is buying him the gun. This assumption that the military operates in some kind of vacuum is incorrect. The Pakistani military's power partly comes from the ideology of Pakistan. The military reinforces the ideology and the ideology reinforces the military. That's the, that's the excess that is being going on. Which is why 
all political forces that question the ideology of Pakistan are the ones that are really attacked. Go back in history. Bacha Khan, starting with Bacha Khan, Hussain Shahid Swarwardi, Awami League, National Awami Party, then it became the Awami National Party. The government is, uh, the, the, the military is generally very happy with the various factions of the Muslim League and the jamaat islami and the jamaat ulma islam and all that because none of them are questioning the fundamental nature of the state. People who are saying this is an ideological state, the military is comfortable with the ideological state because then it can say we are the defenders of the ideology and we are the defenders of the frontiers of the country. And once you say no, this country is a country because it is a country, not because it needs an ideology to be a country. There are many states in history that have arisen, have come about and over a few decades, a few centuries they have become nation. That's how the process of nationhood starts. Belgium. There was no Belgium before 1830. But you know, 150 years later, 160 years later, nobody even questioned. So the Belgians have focused on their own progress. And they have not spent all their time and energy building a military. The, the size difference between Belgium and France is the same as between India and Pakistan. If the Belgians convinced themselves that they had to forever compete militarily with France, they would have to make a whole lot of a more chocolate than they do now to be able to compete with France. But they chose not to do that. They are happy to be at the center of NATO, they are happy to be at the center of the EU and those things are possible, that future is possible for Pakistan too. It's not an easy nut to crack and I didn't say that. But it is possible if the military's dominance is no longer legitimated by the ideology of Pakistan. Yes sir. Sir, I have two questions. One regarding the, how serious is the introspection within the military? Considering the you know recent statement by former DGISPR Akhtar Abbas about the delay in the operation Zarbayaz and subsequently also some statements of the new army chief uh, regarding uh, wiping out all forms of terror. Uh, how serious do you think is the introspection within the military? I think there is tremendous introspection in Pakistan all around including in the military. Specifically among the officer class. Nobody, look in, the, in this modern day and age nobody can live in, I mean Nobody can live in total isolation. You can create a bu bubble. You can tell yourself that what the world is saying is irrelevant. But you can't totally ignore what the world is saying because it eventually overtakes you. So people are aware Then the bombings do take place and the attacks do take place within Pakistan cities. So there is a process of uh, uh, introspection going on. Is it big enough, strong enough to say what the general said about the Pakistani military totally saying, you know what? We need to let the civilians make decisions. We need to concede uh, supremacy to them. Maybe we are good on the tactical level, but the question of who is the enemy should be determined by parliament, not by us. That st stage has not yet arrived. Sir, my second question is regarding the spoils of Punjab. Today, Mr. Hassan Askari has written about the elites fighting about the spoils of Punjab in the context of the agitation that is going on. Now, how does the PPP visualize its own resurgence in the context of the spoils? That's a much more complex uh, question and not necessarily something that everybody here would be interested in. So we can have a conversation it, about it privately. Uh, all political forces, look, no political force is ever completely wiped out unless and until its idea and its core is finished. So for example, 
the party that has won overwhelmingly in the recent Indian election is a party that only about 18 years ago had only two members in parliament. So political parties do go up and down and as long as their core belief system and their core uh, support base is alive, they can resurge. And I expect the same of the ANP, which had a very bad election, but they immediately came back. They won a couple of by-elections. And the PPP has also had some good turns in Punjab. They have won some by-elections recently, which means that they can slowly come back. Politics is a far more complex process than can be reduced to just numbers, uh, in, in, although some people do try. Sir, I'll let you point to the... Because your what I would suggest is, please identify yourself also. Yes, that's much better. Thank you. Myself, Jiyam Shah from Academy of International Studies. Sir, everyone has good wishes for Pakistan, whether people are in India or Pakistan. But our prescription is slightly not to the situation, exactly to the situation. Because Pakistan is a country which is based on a very Muslims live in majority, and especially with Islam as a religion, it has 1400 years of history, Islamic history, Tariq of Islam. And all those people who want to drag it towards that course, they will not compromise with this 1400 history and ultimately they will want to have a in the storm. What is basically regarded by Pakistan is the scientific revolution that is the creation of scientific temper. Because state is the product of the society. If we just go, just we are basically quarreling for the state without taking care of the society. What has to be done in science and technology, in good education, quality education, scientific revolution from below is required and ultimately the state will the passage of time change um, I understand your question, but you know, sometimes, look, this is a problem throughout the Muslim world. There are some people who have this notion that their understanding of Islam is not as a dynamic faith but as a stagnant faith that we need to recreate the Islam of the 7th century. But the truth is that we all do live in the 21st century. So even the Islamic state of Iraq and uh, uh, the Levant, uh, they go around on vehicles. I mean, there's a, there's a recent joke that there was a man who uh, sat in a cab in London and told the cabbie to turn off the music. And the man said, why should I turn off the music? He said, because it's not allowed by Islam. Uh, it was, he said, why is it not allowed by Islam? He said, it's not allowed by Islam because it did not exist in the time of the Prophet. So the cab driver immediately stopped the cab and said, please get out. Uh, so the man said, why are you asking me to get out? He said, because there was no cab in the time of the Prophet. So why are you sitting, why are you sitting in my cab? My point being that all these arguments are selective. It's all about political power, they use these arguments, but Iran has not shunned modernity. They are trying to pursue nuclear weapons, which is a modern thing. They are trying to cut a deal with America because they want spare parts. I, when I was serving as Pakistan's ambassador to the US, Iranian interests in Washington are looked after by Pakistan, so we sometimes understood what the Americans... The Iranians were constantly looking for modern technology and equipment. As far as the scientific temperament is concerned, I want you to be very careful about this presumption. I want all of us to have a scientific temperament. However, however, sometimes just studying science and technology doesn't give you a scientific temperament. Osama bin Laden studied engineering. He studied engineering and what he learned from it was how to build better tunnels. He's a civil, en he's a civil engineer. How to build 
tunnels where he of course will park the jihadis that will blow up the world to bring us back to where it is. So this is all about, these are multi-dimensional things. You can't say we have to do this first and they all have to happen together. The Muslim world will at some point settle down and have to reconcile to the fact that if you're going to live in the 21st century, you can't be totally selective but as individual human beings we will still remain selective. We will sometimes say I want to sit in the cab but I don't want to listen to music. It's a human uh, human weakness and it will coexist and slowly it will evolve. What is important is that the state should not force people in a particular direction. When the state says it is okay to kill Ahmadis or winks and nods or it says that you know an attack on Shias or Hindus or Christians will not be retaliated by the state then that is the beginning of the problem the state should be establishing pluralism protecting minorities uh, my wife will be talking about that uh, in a couple of days here at Jamia uh, Faranaz Ispahani who is sitting right in the front row very proud of her work on the minorities in Pakistan and on the women of Pakistan but all of these arguments will take place simultaneously and changing the state sometimes takes priority I agree with you that the state reflects the society but I think that the state sometimes shapes the society by allowing injustices etc to go without any uh, response and so this has to be a simultaneous process Please. Yeah, so this is uh, Dr. I would like to compliment like everybody else for such a candid and repressing interpretation of Pakistan. Quite a bold voice and unique some of your writings. We are aware of your analysis and interpretations of the subject. With the light of that remark, I would like to say that, that probably your notion of inclusive Pakistan is very different and quite substantive as opposed to our Prime Minister's notion of inclusive India, which is without it Mubarak and our party. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I was just wondering uh, if you could say some thoughts on, on, the, on the behavior of the state, because in your narrative of reimagining Pakistan, my understanding is that also requires reimagination of India. Uh, and in a manner that, that is compatible, not just the reality, but the changing realities internally that's happened in India. My own analysis is that, that based on the outcome of the important election, which I see contains very enduring signs of deepening of the politics, possibility of hostility towards Pakistan could probably become, which it used to be more episodic one, be far more regular, and it would be at different levels. And I was wondering, the state conduct on this side would be very different. Okay. Um, first of all, as you know, unlike you who is an academic, I am somebody who has gone through life uh, partly as a diplomat. So I know that one thing you never do is comment on the internal politics of the country that you are visiting. So if you want me to, if you want me to comment on India's internal politics, I will not do that. Uh, as a Pakistani, all I can say is that we wish India well. Um, those of us who are pluralist, democratic Pakistanis, we have always admired India's democracy. We have admired India's secularism and we want India to continue along that path and hopefully nurture those uh, structures and institutions that have very carefully been built over the last many, many decades. And every nation has to care for its own reimagination. Demanding the reimagination of someone else is never part of the bargain. 
as far as the question of hostility is concerned, my own understanding is that India's ambition, expectation uh, of being a major player on the global scene and being an economic power, uh, which are all realistic by most accounts, do not involve thinking of any of the neighbors, any of the neighbors, as a uh, permanently hostile neighbor because economic progress requires a calming down of tempers and that is my understanding but I'd be very happy to talk to you after the talk and learn if you think that that is different. I don't think that breeding hostility towards any of the neighbors would be in India's interest. Uh, be, please be short. And uh, please identify yourself. I, I, I will repeat it for the benefit of people at the back. Don't worry. I've got your back, as the Americans say. <laughs> No, I do not agree. I do not agree with that. Yeah. Question: Yeah, I think I think Somalia is a failed state. Afghanistan, Pakistan, these are not countries that are. Or Nigeria are not failed states. These are countries that are struggling. And the whole concept of failed state in political science has gone through a lot of changes. Uh, so uh, when I mentioned the term, I mentioned it as various terms that have been used in relation to Pakistan. And it's not a good thing. I mean, look, Pakistan has been taught. The first mention of Pakistan as a potentially failed state, I was researching it and I found it in an article by Hans J. Mokontho in 1956, which is the year I was born in. So at least I have grown up 58 years as a Pakistani with the whole idea that there is a fail, fail, fail. This is not the final exam yet, obviously. Uh, so, so it is something that continues for a long time. But ideally, of course, you should never be on the brink of failure for so long that people continue to think of you as a failed state. But to answer your question more simply, Somalia is a failed state. No ability of the state to control anything. Everybody doing whatever they like. Pakistan, Nigeria, Afghanistan, we are not failed states. We are states that are dealing with very, very poor and weak institutions. We can always come back from it and we can move further and fall down. Who did? Those who find the term failed state, sure. uh, the argument based on the argument that Name, first, first, your name. Pratik uh, Yeah. Throughout your talk or lecture, the main culprit that came out to me was the Pakistani military. And their apprehension towards saying that the Chaukidar is somehow telling the state that it has a threat outside itself. But don't you think somehow it is, it is uh, a kind of defense mechanism that comes through since the Sovereign nation of Pakistan is often being, you know, uh, people from US or the US uh, army often infiltrates into the sovereign nation of Pakistan and bombards the area of Pakistan, thus even fueling the apprehension of Pakistani army. 
Well, first of all, look, any military action by the United States, direct military action or limited action such as I'm sure you're referring to things like drone strikes, etc. These are all very recent. Pakistan's history is slightly longer and to the young people sitting in the back, here's my advice. Always remember that before yesterday was day before yesterday and before day before yesterday was the day before day before yesterday. So never start your analysis from just reading newspapers. There's always something behind them as well. Um, uh, I don't know how many people here speak or know any Urdu but there's a famous Urdu share ke waqt karta hai parvarish parson haad sa ek dam nahi hota. So this whole business about the American role in Pakistan actually goes back to 1948-49 when Pakistan sought American assistance. I have published a whole book on it recently called Magnificent Delusion, which is all about the relationship. I did not hold the Pakistani military as the only culprit. I just explained the realities as they have emerged. Military has become the major institution. But the fact remains that immediately after the creation of Pakistan, it wasn't the military, it was the Muslim League that found itself in a very unusual position. Most of the leaders of the Muslim League did not belong to the area that became Pakistan. They belonged here. They went from here. Lakhat Ali Khan, the first Prime Minister, was from Karnal. Our first Education Minister was from Delhi. Uh, our first uh, Governor General and leader, founder of the nation was from Bombay and said that he wanted to be sent back, I mean, want to be uh, go back to Bombay and retire there. So the problem was that the relationship between the leader, leaders and the land did not exist and uh, and even the biggest Bengali leader even though East Pakistan uh, was Bengali speaking and the leaders were but Hussein Shahid Swarwardi was from Calcutta not from Dhaka so it created a political situation in which these leaders could have been magnanimous and they could have yielded leadership to the people who belong to the soil but instead of doing that what they did was they decided that they are going to try and create an ideological paradigm and then the military got involved in it because it wanted to be the dominant institution because it needed the resources. So that was the dynamic I was trying to explain in my lecture. I hope when you read it in print, you will be able to understand the historic narrative as I have explained it. Yes. Uh, you didn't introduce yourself. Nice to, nice to make your acquaintance. Uh, first of all, anti-Americanism in Pakistan is not new. The first anti-American demonstration in Pakistan did not take place because of Afia Siddiqui. It took place many, many years before Afia Siddiqui was born. It took place in 1948. The problem is that when you want to get resources from somebody who is much bigger and more powerful than you, then you need, you want to try and have leverages of influence over them. So, 
Pakistan was a relatively weak country and it needed American assistance badly. America at that time did not think Pakistan was important enough for it to give assistance. So the entire Americanism was used as a way of getting attention. You know, you're not listening to me, so I am going to be against you, so then you can, then you don't want me to be your enemy. So it was a way of getting attention. And if you see, the part, that has continued over the last 60 years. What we see is an aggravation. Oh, by the way, recently there's a change. I mean, in 2012, 80% of Pakistanis in an opinion poll said they were against America. Now it's down to 59, 60%. 20-30% say we don't have a particular opinion. So that's already changing. Whenever America's role is bigger than, larger than life in Pakistani life, many things are happening. The establishment is also trying to propagate, and the Americans are holding back support or assistance, or are or, or are based are, are in an argumentative mode. Mode, ye denge, ye nahi denge. We'll give you this. We won't give you this. At that time, it is suitable to have anti-Americanism. But lately, there is no massive demonstrations against America. For example, you saw for the last one year since Mr. Nawaz Sharif has come to office. No burning of American flags, no large demonstrations, etc. So if people are innately anti-American, why are they more anti-American in 2012 when the PPP or 2011 when the PPP is in office and not anti-American when the Muslim League is in office in 2014? Both the PPP and the Muslim League and the military, <coughs> they need American support. But one uses... Uh, one uses the entire American argument against the other, so that's what happens. It has become part of Pakistan's political discourse to be anti-American, uh, but I think nations need to go beyond being anti-anybody. You need to be rational and realistic in your approach to international relations. You can't base international relations on emotions, and being against anybody, on a, I'm against you on a permanent basis, is an emotional statement, it's not a rational statement. Somebody Some from backside, the young women, the students. Uh, yeah. Uh, bo both of you. Don't know. Bari bari. Ek ek karke. Ek ek karke. Being similar to somebody and being the same is different. So nobody wants to turn anybody into anything anymore. It, it's quite clear. I don't think I don't think there are many people who Pakistan, by the way, in 1947 included Bangladesh. So I don't think there is anybody. You know, the moment somebody talks about Bangladesh becoming part of India again, I can see riots taking place in many of your eastern states and even in Mumbai. So I think we should be very careful with our choice of words. As far as similarities concerned, I think that there will always be similarities between all nations that are pluralist, democratic, tolerant, modern, um, and, 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 and that encourage and multi-ethnic. And I think that there will be similarities in a multi-ethnic, plural, pluralist, democratic Pakistan. There will be similarities to a multi-ethnic, democratic, plural India. Abul.
Well, the most important thing is that religion needs to be recognized for what it is. Religion's purpose is to bring piety to the soul. The purpose of religion is not to organize your politics. Uh, 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 otherwise, I mean, all of us, all of us visualize God as omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful. If the all-powerful God only wanted politics to be the objective of religion, then they would just make all of us feel a certain way and there would be only one political party, there would be only one political approach. The diversity has been created among us. Politics is not the object of religion. Piety is. Better human beings, cleaner souls. That is what religion is seeking. And what has we have seen is that this imposition of politics into this injection of politics into religion and the injection of religion into politics has made both politics and religion impure. You don't find people, the, the people who are in politics are not as pious as they claim to be and the people who use religion for political purposes do not also serve politics well. So Pakistan's future and a reimagined Pakistan basically requires taking some of this hyper-religiosity out of Pakistan's political uh, discourse. Gigi, Well, um, unfortunately, I haven't read much of Dr. Siddiqui's work. I'm familiar with it, but I have not read much of it. In any case, I think this is too premature. Uh, I think we are talking about normalization of relations, which is the first step. Talking about uh, other kind of arrangements is much, much farther down the road. And very frankly, I don't think it's the job of political scientists, even though Dr. Siddiqui has chosen to do that. But, you know, political, not much changes in politics in one year, two years, five years, let alone 45 years. What is desirable for all of South Asia is greater economic integration like the European Union. We would all be far more prosperous and everybody would benefit much more if there was much more economic uh, integration among all the nations of South Asia from Afghanistan to Bhutan, Nepal, Maldives, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka um, and certainly India and Pakistan. I think last question. Yeah. Actually, uh, Kaunil Sharif from the Indian Express. Oh God! <laughs> uh, so, how do you define relations with India, in this process of reimagination, especially when you have to deal with a BJP-led government in the national party? It doesn't matter what kind of government the people of India choose for themselves. It is 
or what kind of government the people of Pakistan choose for themselves. What is important is that it is in the interest of both India and Pakistan to overcome the burden of history, to become friends and understand that it is not in the interest of either country to maintain a state of permanent hostility. And very frankly, I think that leaders who want economic progress and who are elected on a manifesto of economic progress will need, will need the end of hostilities for that economic progress and we are, uh, we are in some ways, we have leaders both in Pakistan and India who want economic progress for their respective countries and that is e most easily attainable by uh, ending the state of hostility and recognizing the many, many, many shared values and the shared history of our countries. Last question. Last question. Yeah, after last. that most nations in the modern world who are doing well economically, a significant portion of their trade is with their neighboring countries. You can see China with ASEAN and Taiwan and South Korea and Japan, major trade. Pakistan is unlucky that our major economic partners are Europe and Japan and America all far away. India too, by the way, needs to recognize that it will benefit far more from a more open trading regime within the subcontinent, among all the countries of the region. It's a basic economic factor. Something that is produced in India is cheaper to deliver in Pakistan than it is to deliver in Japan. Similarly, something produced in Pakistan is cheaper to sell in India than it is to sell in the United States. And then, because of shared cultural uh, 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 dimensions, we have many, many things that we can trade with one another that, uh, very frankly, uh, we cannot with others. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, our, our diets are similar, uh, the kind of clothes our people, our women and men wear are similar. It's easier to produce those. And so, there are many, many aspects that would benefit uh, both countries and other countries of the region if the South Asian free trade agreement for example is implemented and the region starts thinking as a region rather than just as individual countries and if that involves Pakistan and India overcoming their burdens of the, of the past then so be it. But I think that economically integration and greater exchange is the way forward for both countries. In the past, both India and Pakistan have had the approach that we should resolve disputes first and become friends later. My view is that it is always better to try and become friends first and approach the disputes later. You are much, it's much easier among friends to resolve disputes than it is 
between enemies. Thank you all very much.